You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashofSteel.com. This is episode number 78, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And with me today is freelance writer Rob Zachney. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, it's just Rob today. Uh, we wanted to have a third panelist, but it's, once again, schedules aren't working out. So this might be a little bit of a shorter show uh, than you're used to, uh, which is probably fine. Actually, fine with me because I have a lot of deadlines uh, this week. What is it with everything coming together at the same time, Rob? Um, I have no idea, but the work comes in waves. That's probably a personal failing. <laughs> You know, deadlines come in waves. I need a I need a wall calendar is what I need so I can write down what I have to do because this week it's Google just... created a wall calendar. It's in it lives on the internet. Yeah, but it's not in my face. See, I mean it'll be there, and a Google Calendar is great for coordinating with other people, but it's not in my face enough. I need a great big wall calendar with bright colors and star starbursts and stuff to remind me, hey, idiot, you have to write fifteen hundred words tomorrow. So we'll see how that works. You don't have uh, to write 1,500 words, do you? I hope not. Oh, God. I hope not. No, I have a review to finish up and some other work uh, that needs doing this week. Uh, so we may cut this one a little bit short tonight. Uh, but this week's topic is something I've talked about uh, before on the blog. There will be a link to that post. and I'll probably elaborate on some of those uh, games further. Uh, this week's topic is one suggested by Soren Johnson in an email. Uh, something as a designer... He's very interested in. Uh, we talk a lot about games and mechanics and see games as mechanics and as systems. We talk a lot about good games and why they have great mechanics and bad games and why they have bad mechanics. Generally, the two go together very nicely. But there are also those rare instances where bad games or incomplete games or average games have little bits of genius to them, have things that make you think, wow, if only a better game were doing this. Uh, that make you sit and take pause and say, you know, this is something worth looking at, an idea worth stealing, if you will. Uh, so that is what this week's show is about, uh, bad games with good ideas. Now, Rob, you were saying you are having some trouble uh, this trying to think of examples. Is there a reason for that? You're just... um, well, yeah, the, the, until very recently, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't play games for a living. Um, so I got to pick and choose what I was going to get into, and I had the luxury of waiting to hear uh, reviewers weigh in on it. So, you know, I was totally one of those gamers for years where if something dipped below that, you know, 85%, you know, 85 score, you know, I could I'd take a pass. Uh, there were just other options available to me. So I actually missed a lot of, you know, the, the noble failures, the flawed works of genius, and the, and the complete tripe. Um, so, I mean, that's, it, it's the same problem I ran into with the Strategy Disasters show we did uh, last year. And that is that I haven't been forced to sit down and play um, a lot of really troubled games. Now that you are uh, playing troubled games. Oh, man. Uh, in fact, you wrote a review of a very troubled game quite recently, your review of Making History 2. Yeah. A game which you really destroyed. Uh, in your view, did that have any uh, anything you would point to and say, well, you know, if this was a good idea if they'd gone more in that direction or is that an example of a bad game that for you had nothing redeeming about it you know that's as i as i wrote it like the first thing i really hated about making history too uh, was just was just this awful interface um i'm pretty sure like it's clearly designed i think to work uh through a browser which means there have been some ugly compromises made. Um, so it does, it doesn't, it's not really well optimized. And the interface is very click-heavy. Doing anything is this laborious process. Um, and I thought it was just the interface's problem, that there was a you know, pretty sound game underneath. But as I was writing my review, I realized that one of the reasons there was so much, there was so much work to do in that game is that they left a lot of busy work in it. Um, you know, one of the things I brought up in my review is that, you know, you, you manage cities and regions. Um, you know, the cities, you know, build units and the regions harvest raw materials. Uh, but the thing is, there are so many of each that, and there's so much you, you have to do, both in cities and um, in regions, that the workload is just, is just staggering. To, to do nothing very interesting, like building farms. Building farms involves hundreds and hundreds of repeated orders. Right. Um, so, it, I mean, that you know, you, the interface kind of sucks, but 
if you if you design a game that forces you to give that many orders that are basically unimportant, um, mm-hmm. then then that's a real problem. But I will say that one of the things I really did enjoy about the game, if if you want if you want to talk about like good ideas it had, um, one thing it, one thing it represented very nicely was um, you know the economy as you know the peacetime economy and the wartime economy are very different are very different and how resource hungry the wartime economy is and so it was it was always very interesting to try to match the you know the income of resources uh to what your what your economy needed but also mm-hmm. start laying supplies away for that day when world war would begin to disrupt supply lines um so it was it was very neat to have to like to be thinking long term and building up like you know as germany you'd have to be thinking of building up a huge national reserve of oil right. because there's going to come a day when nobody was going to be trading with you and you could get everything else for yourself pretty easily but oil and oil is you know, oil was your Panzer divisions. It was your navy. It was everything. Right. Um, so sometime, you know, well in advance of start really kicking the war off, you had to be thinking, my economy really needs to be about, you know, producing money to buy oil. So I mean, the, the, you know, that was that was managing the economy and making sure it was you know properly fed and watered so it could keep you know both producing wealth and uh, powering your troops. Uh, that was that was actually. That was actually really well handled, and I think if the game had been stripped down a bit. It would have it would mm-hmm. have been a happier product. Yeah, it's a good example. Um, I wrote about a blog post about like a while ago, a couple of years ago. And I used the phrase "noble junk" lifting off something. Uh, Tom Chick had written in a review, and the game that comes to my mind immediately is a bad game with a great idea. And this is once again my ancient bias showing is uh, <laughs> Pax Romana. Now, Pax Romana. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a strategy game set in the Roman Republic from, you know, the wars against Paris until the end of the Republic, more or less. And it was a, really a bad game. <laughs> so much, right? It was, didn't, most of the features didn't work. Uh, it was kind of like a card collecting game. You could have play cards to counter mm-hmm. your opponent's actions. Really, really neat stuff. You know, your opponents would pass a law that hurt you, so you would p- play your Tribune, and your Tribune would block that, but you only had so many of them. You can do all this little neat stuff, and it was actually it had some nice ideas, but many of the things just did not work. Uh, the AI was impossible, there were too many rebels, it was just stupid, stupid game. But it had a great election system. I mean, you look at something like Europa Universalis Rome, where the digitally how you don't really take part in the elections, because uh, you control the country, and you know, the you try to manage your faction so that the bad guys, the populists, don't take over. In Pax Romana, you were a member of a faction, so you wanted to get as many offices as you can, uh, but also make sure that the right people are in the right offices and that you don't try to be too much of a threat to anybody else. So all this neat stuff going on. So you would actually participate in the elections. You would decide who in your faction would be running for which office, How, who would be advanced further up the cursus on arm fastest. Who's the now, right is there age? like a campaigning mechanic? And well, you you like the elections would be announced, and you'd pick your people, and you could see their uh, popularity go up and down with the people, with the voters, and you'd do little like little things to help every now and then, like bread and circuses. You'd play some bread and circuses, or you have a cast bad omen on somebody else, and but you wouldn't want to do it all too soon because you don't know when somebody's popular, when one of the candidates is going to win a really big victory. One of your opponents is going to defeat the barbarian. Then his popularity just shoots up. And you may have already spent all of your bad stuff, all your penalties that could have hurt him. You may already have lost that. So the whole election, which you had to pay attention to uh, throughout the year, became sort of this game within a game. Um, Because once you won the election, you would then just as in ancient Roman politics, be in line to be governors of the provinces. It's not like EU Rome where anybody can govern a province, pretty much. Uh, you had to actually have held a major office. So oh, if you wanted cool. to become really rich, you had to have become an, a, a, a consul or a praetor. And if you're shut out of those offices, um, then you're shut out of the provinces. But your guys who are over in the provinces as, as governors can't be running in the elections because they have to serve there for a couple of years and come back. So you can't just have it back and forth. So there's this interplay of, do I want to be a governor now? Do I want to be a governor later? Is there a war going to be coming up? I want to fight in four years' time. So when when do I have to win an election? Uh, It's 
It was a great, wonderful mechanic, so well thought out, on top of this really terrible game with a poor economy and poor AI and poor rebels popping up all over the place. Uh, broken mechanics, like you couldn't elect dictators even though they said you could. The laws didn't really work well. Uh, but there was this really nice kernel of an election mechanic that I think if they, they clearly put a lot of effort into. And it worked. So much of the game didn't. But yeah. this part worked. And it was just astonishing to see it and to be a part of it. And that was really the best part of it. Um, and people who still talk about that game and like it are always talking about that. Say, that's the kind of thing I would like to see in these games that have factions to control a faction and manipulate an election to be a part of it. And not just be, you know, the grand poobah god controlling everything and just hoping things don't fall apart. Right. So, is any has any like a uh, Roman themed game really taken that taken that concept and run with it? Not really, because there haven't been that many. I mean, uh, EU Rome didn't, uh, because that's not what paradox people do. They do, you know, you're the guiding spirit of a country idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't have you participating in the elections. Um, I'm not quite. There really aren't any other grand strategy Roman games out there at the moment, uh, which is a shame, because uh, that's my favorite time period, and that's the sort of thing I would love to see. I would love to have a game, even like a, a Sims-type game or a Republic the Revolution-type game, where I control a faction, and I have to uh, work my way up, uh, work my way through. Uh, I think there's a real potential for some interesting, fun, character-based role-playing strategy in that sort of thing, uh, where you aren't you aren't Jupiter, you are Caesar. And I have to face the things Caesar had to do, which are elections. He wasn't all about, you know, building roads and conquering people. It was about winning elections and keeping the support of the people and making sure that his opponents uh, didn't get the better of him. Um, Sometimes a lot of dirty tricks. And that's the sort of thing that Pax Romana had in the election uh, mechanic. That's the sort of thing I would love to see more of in strategy games. Well, I mean, I I think, like, <laughs> elections are something strategy games really I think need to get better at. Yeah. Uh because it, it you know not being able to do elections in an interesting way um kind of limits kind of limits how you can tackle certain subjects. I mean I'm hearing you talk about talking about Rome and I I'm thinking how that could be immediately translated to say um ancient Athens. Right. Um or or Sparta for that matter. How you how you've got these these blended systems out there. Um that you know, any strategy game that casts you as, you know, the supreme ruler of a country, 99 times out of 100, that's, it's, it's completely lying to you. That's a, that's a made-up position. That's historical fantasy, which right. is sometimes the, the role of a strategy game, but sure. sometimes you do want to role-play it a little bit. You, you, don't want to be the, you don't want to be the ruler of Athens. You want to be Pericles. You want to be, you know, the boss of Athenian politics and... You know, manipulate the population and make sure your lieutenants are getting the choice assignments. Um, but if it's if elections are just a way of keeping score, and there's not an interesting mechanic attached to them, um, they're dead things. They don't they don't really have an interesting gameplay effect. Well, it'd be great to have you know games that did take you know political factions seriously, that uh, did cast you as the leader of a group. Imagine something about a game about the American Revolution. Where you are John Adams or Sam Adams, oh. and you have to lead the republic to independence, when a lot of the country is just happy, you know, sending letters back and forth to the king saying, hey, king, don't be such an ass. Right. I mean, that's the sort of thing where you have issues of class, and you have issues of breeding, and you have issues of region. Um, I mean, you can, of course, carry it. Don't want to make it too historical, because uh, we generally know how all that worked out. Uh, but, you know, something like that, uh, where you're leading one group among a bunch of groups, people within the country. And that's the sort of thing that hist- I think a st- historical-based strategy game, even a fantasy-based strategy game, a, a, a kingmaker uh, type of game set in a fantasy world where you're manipulating factions to get your candidate elected king or whatever. This is the sort of stuff uh, that strategy game can do, but we don't see very much of it. And I think it is because the whole idea of an election mechanic and manipulating factions is, some- is generally seen as a subset of a larger game. And um, it can be the game itself. Well, and it's it's a missed opportunity because there's so much room for drama in those stories. And I think if you look like, you know, just, just to point at, you know, our, our love affair with mob movies, um, 
with 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 crime movies, um, and you know even the stuff like Mad Men. People <laughs> people get fascinated about people get fascinated by politics, right. about the power plays that go on within groups and among individuals, and that I mean ultimately you you can boil that down to be a strategy game. Right. Uh, but most of the time, we're we're concerned with pushing, you know, infantry divisions around maps and just commanding a country or you know, a base. But it would be it would be so interesting to take it down to that personal level. I wonder if there are any good uh, so-called girl games about you know uh, being a, a a mean girl, a clique, a sorority, uh, this sort of thing, because that's sort of the same idea. Oh God, um, I years. Yeah, I years wouldn't ago, know. Okay. This was years and years ago, um, but my, my cousin. Is this confession time, Rob? It's, it's confession time. I well, this I might, <laughs> might this might be a hallucination. This might not be a real thing, but I remember it. Okay. Uh, my cousin, um, she had this game, uh, Mackenzie and Company, or something, um, and it was one of those terrible FMB games. But but the the point of it was um, to to go and become a popular girl. Um, I mean, the game was just this reprehensible um, uh, piece of trash because I'm pretty sure that the, the the maneuvers you made in the course of this game were um, getting on good terms with a boy who would enhance your like cool factor. Um, you know, take some kingmaker type girl, uh, you know, from the cool kids table, take her to the mall, and then go impress her with your taste in clothes. Uh, but the whole game was just this this um, like. This social economy, um, and it's it's terrifying. This was marketed to to you know tween girls, but there you have it. I mean, that's that's a lot of marketing to tween girls is terrifying. But that was basically the gist. Is it wasn't really fleshed out enough to be a strategy game, but there were these these sort of judgments about what was the most beneficial social action to take right. um, to to make you basically um, you know the the king of the playground. Well, there, I think, yeah, well, that's, I mean, you can see how that could be a strategy game, absolutely. I mean, probably was if one of those terrible FMV things. I mean, it's probably locked in stone as to what you could and could not do. Uh, but you can certainly see how that could be uh, a strategy game. A sorority life on Facebook has none of that. Um, so, one thing, one game that I kind of had on my mind, and I don't know that this was that bad a game, but I do remember it, it got a pretty cold reception. Um, was Dark Rain. Dark Rain. Okay, it's one of the very early RTSs. Right, and it, and it was Activision's attempt to get something to go up against, I think it was Activision, but it was their attempt to get something to go up against um, Warcraft and Command and & Conquer. Um, and it was, you know, kind of your bog-standard uh, dystopian future. But, you know, there were a few things I really liked about it then, and looking at the direction the RTS genre has moved since then, um, it was a it was really ahead of its time in a oh, lot of ways. I barely remember Dark Rain. Okay, uh, so it takes place in this in this post apocalyptic wasteland, um, and here the rub was because the planet had nuked had nuked itself. Um, fresh water, drinkable water, uh, was in very short supply, so water was the resource, and you'd find little like um, well springs of it around the map. And you'd you'd harvest it. You'd build you'd build a water pad, um, and so the big mechanic was just was just building these water pad. The, the big the big resource is building these water pads, and protecting them, and preventing the other guy from taking them away. But this was a time when most other games were basically running a peon economy, right? In yeah. Command and Conquer, you've got your little um, Tiberium or ore harvester going out to the field. And picking up crap, you've got your peons marching into the gold mine or chopping down the forest. But here was a game that put the resources outside of your base and put them in areas um, that were really conducive to these pitched battles over these valuable locations. Um, and that's really a direction that Relic ended up sort of taking RTSs, is the idea right. that it's not about bases destroying each other. It's about dominating key points on the map. And having these like intense tactical battles to take and hold a position, like you do in war games, um, right. having that be the way you keep score. And so, Dark Rain, and it didn't catch on. I, I don't think a lot of other games moved in this direction for years, but Dark Rain was one of the first to really make doing battle just to hold territory on the map um, 
a really a really key element of strategy. The other thing it did that was really interesting is that it really played aggressively with um, line of sight. Where aggressively? What do you mean? Um, <coughs> it was. It wasn't just about scouting. It was about being able to see farther than the, than the other guy, creating sentry networks, basically, building camera towers. Um, and there were a few long-range units that if you could, if you could bring, um, you know, if you, if you could get eyeballs on their base, you could just rain hellfire down on the enemy um, without them being, you know, in a position to do anything about it. So... One of the other things that would happen in, in these games is, in addition to these fights over the water pads, you would have these... Um, so, in addition to the fights over um, the water pads, what you'd have are these these battles of line of sight that would take place all over the map. Um, and so, it became very much of a game about positioning forward observers, listening posts all around the map to make sure that you always like saw the other guy coming first, could open fire on his units before he could even get a shot off. Um, it was a game very much about just having intel to tell you what was happening on the map and use the advantage of long-range weapons. Um, where most games, I don't think, were all that concerned with you know, really, really observing the battlefield. You know, you'd send your mob of troops out to wherever you wanted that you'd find yeah. you'd win. This was this was very much um, about like laying fortification networks almost and intelligence networks around the map. Yeah, a lot of games really don't have the important RTSs at least, don't make scouting all that important or knowing the battlefield all that important. Generally you'll scout to begin with, but that's generally to find out where the enemy base is, so you can send your dudes there to kill it. Uh, not really as much as where are they coming from? Because you know they'll get to you eventually, um, and they're generally be streaming from the base. I mean, the idea that you could to you seize certain grounds where you could do more damage uh, is really an interesting one. Well, it's uh, that's something I think StarCraft has really embraced uh, more mm -hmm. successfully than I think uh, most Relic RTSs have. Because with Relic, um, with a game like Company of Heroes or Dawn of War. You still have a pretty good idea of where the enemy is just because of the, the, the location of the strategic points, right? Right. So, I mean, you don't have to know exactly what's there. Like, it helps to know if he's massing an army at, at, at a critical location. But it's not, it's not make or break. Chances are you can pretty much guess where he is. Right. Um, but something like StarCraft, uh, in part because its pace is so unforgiving, uh, but just having a few seconds warning... Um, that something's about to happen, or just being able to see a guy's strategy take shape um, allows you to counter really effectively. So, you, so StarCraft really does embrace that, um, embrace that that battle of scouting and intelligence gathering, um, and is really su successful with it. Right, especially because you know StarCraft, as we talked about last week is a game that is so much like a sport that there are patterns you can recognize. So if you see what somebody else is doing, you can make an educated guess about what their actual plan is going to be. Um, something you can't do in necessarily a lot of other RTSs because um, the patterns are kind of irregular. They just build one of every building. Um, you don't know how not, the buildings have noticeable upgrades. There are, such, there are clear strategies to StarCraft uh, that you can tell by looking at the map and uh, what their force composition is going to be um, that you don't see in necessarily a lot of other RTSs uh, because it is you know, a game that is about, it's about numbers and it's about speed. Um, it's making sure you have the most numbers and you can get your army out fastest. Um, but, you know, knowing that the guy hasn't built any anti-air weapons um, lets you know what you've got to do. Well, I think, I, I think it's <laughs> even a little, a little bit better than that. Um, yeah. You know, just to give you... One example is that um, I had walled off my base. As the Terrans, it's very easy to wall off your base using supply depots, right? Because yep. they raise and lower, so it's like a gate. Um, and so I was feeling pretty secure behind bunkers and supply depots. And, you know, just, you know, I, I used my um, 
command center to scan the other guy's base, and I saw a huge group of uh, Zerg Banelings leaving. And Zerg Banelings are like these little suicide troops, right? They come, they detonate against buildings, and they do heavy damage. So I had about, you know, maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds before basically a suicide squad would show up, blow open the gate, and then a horde of Zerg troops would pour through. Um, and if that happened, I was pretty, I was pretty much dead. Uh, but I used those 45 seconds to research, um, you know, the siege tank siege mode and get a siege tank out there. And it rolled in the position maybe like two or three seconds before they got there. But that was, that was the game, right? You know, he'd put it all into this. So it's, it's definitely, it's definitely like, you, you, you know, you, you see what's happening and you're, you're given this, this brief window to counter it. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's really exhilarating when it works well. Good. I mean, so you think, and you think Dark Rain captured some of that? I think, I think Dark Rain captured a lot of it. I mean, the problem is it was just, you know, it was, these were really cool concepts, right? But the problem is it was, it, these were cool concepts attached to a really uninspired world. Um, a game that just frankly, I mean, in a lot of ways wasn't as good as it's, um, as its peers, so there were a lot of there were a lot of neat ideas there, but right. it was cool mechanics in a game that fundamentally I'm not sure you'd really want to spend that much time playing. Cool. Um, another game that I talked about in this blog post a little while ago, and certainly one worth uh, mentioning, um, is of course you have a new civilization coming out very soon, uh, the end of September. It is my most anticipated game of the year. Um, and I think we will be devoting an extra long podcast to it because I like it that much. Well, not the game, the idea of Civilization. I could end up hating Civ Five. It's entirely possible we'll end up hating uh, I Civ think 5. that's very likely given the uh, hands-ons I've read. Oh, well, there we go. Um, but uh, we'll be devoting some time to it. Uh, so thinking about Civ Five, a game that also had some interesting ideas uh, that didn't quite, didn't quite work out as a game for me, uh, was the Activision Civilization games. Mm-hmm. People tend to forget about the Activision Civilization games because they weren't in the Sid Meier lineage. Uh, they're called the second was just called Call to Power. The first was Civilization Call to Power, and there's a law. It was a lawsuit over whether they could call it that, and eventually they settled it. And um, Civilization Call to Power was basically it was a civilization game, but it had and it wasn't very good. Um, the interface wasn't great. Um, the AI was kind of stupid. Some things were kind of broken in it, but it had a lot of really cool ideas that I think were certainly worth picking up. And I think uh, other people have moved along, will have uh, adopted. And I think, in fact, you'll see some of this in Civ Five. Uh, and one of them, the th- ideas in Cult Civilization, Cult of Power, was you didn't have you didn't have workers or settlers building roads. Uh, you would pay for them. Would have a public purse type thing, and mm-hmm. you would invest money in it, and then it would build the roads, it would build the infrastructure, and that would connect your empire together uh, by your investment in these public works. Um, so you weren't moving lots of little units around and then waiting for them to finish. You would pay for it, and then there it would be. Uh, CIF 5 is doing some of this, I think, uh, with roads at least, uh, paying for a connection between them. They aren't going to be building roads everywhere. Uh, Civ 5 has gold being much more important. I'm not quite sure how it's all going to work. Um, but this was a way to keep the micromanagement down. You didn't feel like you were shepherding a bunch of workers around like you would in Civ 3 or Civ 4. You were investing. You would trust that if I was an emperor, I spend the money on this, it will get built. And there we had it. And that was one of the many interesting ideas uh, in Call to Power. The other really big one for me was uh, non-conventional weapons, non-conventional warfare. Uh, now you could, every era had a special unit you could deploy to distract or annoy uh, an enemy. It's kind of like a, a super-powered unit. Mm-hmm. A slaver or a televangelist or a corporate raider or something uh, that was an unconventional unit and have to, could, could be detected by other units, uh, but and they tended to be overpowered and were kind of broken. But it's this idea you eventually get. Um, they were in every era, and that's something you don't generally get in a lot of strategy games. In a lot of strategy games, turn-based and uh, RTS, these super-powered units are always at the very end. Yeah. There's no sense that every 
period can have a superpower unit, can have a non-conventional unit that breaks the rules, that changes things in very dramatic ways. And this was something that really only Cult of Power did. This idea that warfare isn't just about uh, units running around. It's about sapping the enemy morale. It's about sapping their uh, resources. It's about the slaver could actually steal their people, uh, which is terrible. Well, they had slavery and called the power. It took so for a while to get that far, and even yeah. though it's just a civic there. Uh, so, But it was this interesting idea that showed that Activision, the developers of it, had at least this clue that they could move civilization in a different direction. Um, they could make it conflict not just about marching armies together. It also had tactical battles, uh, Call to Power, hmm. uh, which did not work very well, I thought. Uh, but it had tactical battles between, it, I think Sid Meier's been proven right on that, that it was generally a bad idea for a civilization game to have tactical battles. Um, well, they were roughly tactical. They, they, had, they had armies and running into each other, and right. they would give, which was not, certainly nothing as deep as uh, Mass of Orion 2. But I think that Call to Power had a couple of those little genius moments, and I think, and there are still some people who, who will defend Call to Power as actually a good game. I don't think it ever got to the level of good. I think it was at most an average uh, game. It really didn't have that spark of, uh, it didn't have that that unifying feel that a really good good strategy game has, where all the pieces fit together and everything's connected. In ha- in a Call to Power, there were just little bits stuck here and there that didn't quite fit. But the uh, non-conventional warfare and the public goods, public works uh, system are both, you know, quite well done. Uh, and the sort of thing that you, in the public works thing, something that pops up in other strategy games here and there. Um, the idea that you uh, will invest in certain things you built up. But uh, it's it's a kind of game that I would love to go back and play again, the f- and I think I probably will before Civ Five because I think it probably doesn't have much of a genealogy or a legacy. I don't yeah. think we're going to be saying, "Oh well, they got this from." Let's start with Dark Rain. Yeah. I don't think anybody's looking at Dark Rain and saying, "Wow, clearly somebody was playing Dark Rain when they did StarCraft Two. No, obviously not. It just came to it at a different point. Um, I think it's the same thing with Call to Power. Some people have moved along this route, but almost independently. A game that was not—I would—I'm not going to say it's ahead of its time, uh, but it's a game that had that came to some conclusions before anybody else did. And I think that's something to be said for it. I think that's a game I will have to play before Civ Five comes out, just to see not that there's any legacy because I doubt there is, but just how it holds up. I mean, it's not going to be as good as Civ Four. Uh, it's not going to be as good as Civ Three, or even as Civ Two. Probably as good as Civ One, uh, but it's it's certainly a th- it's one of those titles that I want to go back and revisit, and uh, I have a long list of those. And if I have time, it might actually be worth uh, digging out that sort of digging it out again, and seeing um, just how it. If my fond memories are just delusional. Well, it would be interesting. I would be curious to know, like, I mean, did these games that had good ideas? You know, were they just the proverbial tree falling in the forest? Where, uh, if if we see other games sort of using variants <laughs> on on those ideas, did somehow that idea get communicated to mm-hmm. the developer who finally puts it to good use, or does the idea just sort of hang around out there and somebody else discovers it independently and says, "Hey, I'd like to you know include this mechanic," um, and it just sort of pops up because it's a good idea and right. someone's going to find it? Because um, I mean. You know, I mean, it is. I don't know if you can draw a line between a game like Dark Rain and StarCraft II, but I don't know that you can. I mean, I think, you know, Dark Rain wasn't a totally overlooked game. People played it, and, you know, people, stuff sticks out in people's memories. Yeah, but it's been a long time. (laughs) It has. In fact, we haven't seen a lot of it since. I think that's what sets a lot of these games apart. These uh, uh, glaring, these bits of genius and failure is that because they are in failed games, I think people tend to look at them as complete failures. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by, by game genealogy. The idea that there are lines between games you can draw. And usually it's when developers, uh, individual developers or programmers move from one company to another. And you can, once you start to recognize the names, you can actually see some of the influence. Yeah. Uh, that some of these people have, and how wow, this guy 
really knows what tactical battles are supposed to be like. So all of a sudden, a franchise or a game comes out that just moves it in that other direction. We've talked about uh, TimeGate before and how uh, Tom Check has. Now, Section 8 really stands out in a way, from its genre, in a way that Kohan stood out from the RTS when it came out. That, you know, this is the this is way that TimeGate thinks of taking a genre and twisting it just enough that it's recognizable but entirely unique and sadly usually unsuccessful. Yeah. Uh, such is their curse. And you, you can see it with the impressions people, and you can see it with uh, the, the, the microprose di- diaspora and the Firaxis diaspora. Uh, and I think it would be some of this with the ensemble diaspora, the sense that there is, you, could, you can see the influence of individual people uh, spreading throughout uh, the strategy game market uh, once you get to know the names. Some people just, there are people who are just really good at doing UI. And yeah. if you follow, you know, the UI people from one place to the next, all of a sudden you can see a studio just step it up a notch. Um, and it would be interesting to see if, you know, what happened to the Dark Rain developers? Where did they go? Yeah. Um, or the people who did Call to Power, did they stay on strategy games? Did they stay in gaming at all? Um, <coughs> because, you know, some of these are really good ideas, and you can see uh, a dev- maybe a developer really fighting for one of these ideas that just sounds so ridiculous um, you can see them fighting for it at a project meeting. Say, no, we've got to have this. This is something really special. And it coming through, and then the game getting lost. Yeah. Like I, said, I mean, Dark Rain wasn't wasn't unknown when it came out. I mean, I barely remember it, but as I recall, it was you know it was very unique uh, at its time. Um, then quickly got swallowed up by the wave of RTSs that came immediately afterwards. Well, I uh, think I think it it came out almost. I remember it being sort of head-to-head with Total, total Annihilation, um, which, again, I, I think represents, like, you know, this other direction that RTSs went. It was like, well, we can we can throw more stuff up there on the screen. It's going to be big. Right. It's going to blow your mind. And, and it did. It did. But I, I think... Right. You know, over the over the long <laughs> haul, I think more enduring ideas showed up in in the overlooked, you know, kind of unloved game, right? Like right. Total Annihilation leads to um, Supreme Commander, and it, I thought, yeah, um, and and it gets too big for its own good. You know, it becomes it becomes overbearing to a lot of people, but but something like Dark Rain, which nobody really remembers, but there's there's a few of these good ideas that, that just stick around, and they stick in your mind, and eventually they, they find a home in a really good game, um, right. where you see what happens when these ideas are part of a larger project, where everything is firing on all cylinders. Um, and, and then you see sort of like what a force multiplier one good, innovative idea can be. Yeah, and it's kind of remarkable that, you know, a lot of these great ideas or interesting ideas only really get recognized in the good games um, and are hailed as innovative and pathbreaking. And they're innovative and pathbreaking because somebody put it together with the right other package, not because necessarily they're the first people to do it, but it's the first time it all fits together uh, with other mechanics supporting it. So it's not just this one odd thing sticking out, saying, well, that's great. These line of sight things are really neat. Oh, well, it's that really cool election mechanics. Too bad about the rest of it being a big pile of ass. Well, it, uh, and you know, it's so it often gets lost. And I think we, I think we as game critics, uh, really need to keep in mind that I mean we're both reviewing um, some some of the same games right now. We've talked a bit about one of them before the podcast. That you know you can we can criticize a game. And we do a lot, and still say, but there's some really big parts of genius here. Some things that really stand out and make you pause and say, these guys know what they're doing. These aren't idiots. Uh, and I think game critics are often so keen on being really harsh about a game because you know bad reviews are funny. People like to pretend they're really funny and write a bad review of a game. Well, it's a chance to make a lot of jokes about how stupid this thing is. But you know, even the worst game, not even the worst game, but many bad games have, you know, just something in them uh, that I think critics should probably point to and say, well, you know what, this is and not necessarily in their review, at least with their peers, that there's some evidence out there that, you know, a bad game can move a genre forward um, and not just by bad example. It can move a genre forward by having uh, interesting and new and creative ways of solving problems. 
Um, so, yeah, there's my rant for the day. Well, no, and I, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I think it's one of the frustrating things about reviewing games, though, um, and it just it drives me a little crazy, is that you know if you slap a certain score on something, nobody's going to care about it. You know, what I mean, like yeah. you can, you, you know, if you're giving a game like a B minus or something or right. C plus, that I mean, you can't in good conscience say to people, "Well, you should play this because it's a really good game." But there is this part of you that wants to say, "You know what? This this isn't a very good game, right. but you should still play it because it's an interesting game. It's going yeah. to be so much more interesting than a lot of the technically more proficient, maybe you know, more enjoyable." Um, games that are that are out there available for you to play right now, but I guarantee you it's going to be this one with its you know with this yep. screwy mechanic that you know it's it's it it stands out in a you know in a mediocre in an overall mediocre product. But this is something you're going to be thinking about for a long time. It's going to sit yep. there. It's going to you know tickle in the back of your mind, and it's really frustrating that it's like there's there's really no room for that sort for that to make people curious about a game uh, just because it does it, it's flawed but really interesting. You know, this is the Command & Conquer 4 problem, right? Command & Conquer 4 is you know, not a great game because it locked so many units up mm-hmm. uh, through the campaign, so advancing was a, was a nuisance. This whole MMO thing I don't think worked very well. But once you got past all that, you had this whole support team type mechanic thing that as Tom points out, is very much like World in Conflict, which is a much better game. Uh, but that in the Command and Conquer universe, it actually works really, really well. But you have to go through so much hell to get there. I can't recognize. I can't recommend the game. Uh, but if you can get past it, there's actually something worth looking at in Command and Conquer Four. I think it's it's partly, I think, just an unfortunate way of the life cycle of games. Where I think if you're writing, if you're writing a review of a movie. For instance, mm-hmm. and at most you're going to cost someone the 10, 12 bucks it takes for a ticket. Um, and so I think there's totally a lot more room to give the the middling review that's going to make a lot of people still want to go see it. It's it's it, there's a lot more room to say, you know what, I don't really like this movie, but damn it, it's really cool and you should go see it. Yep. With games, you know, when you're talking about something that's like 50, 60 bucks, it's yep. it, you know you you have to approach it I think from a slightly more consumerist perspective, but that also leaves you at a disadvantage because you're going to give a score you're going to give a score on the pro- to the product but that's maybe not the score you'd attach to the ideas within the product you know yeah and the 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 sad thing is that we have games ha- there are so many more avenues for a game to have a rich and rewarding afterlife right now yep. um you know where there there are so many great games that you can pick up you know on the cheap through any number of services um but the, they they won't be they won't, they still won't find the audience they deserve because they will be forgotten by yep. and large people people aren't going to go and look up your your old review, um, but I, I do think it behooves you to to you know maybe seek these games out and remind people they're out there you know once once you once you can once you're farther away from launch and you can just look at it as an example of design right um, I think it's it behooves us as critics to to go back and say. You should, you know, you should really pick this game up now, because it, it wasn't very good when it launched. But these days, it's it's a nifty it's a nifty little gadget. Yeah, and that's what I've been trying to do in the feature series that I've been writing. Um, I've written two, and we had the decade series, which is kind of stillborn, uh, waiting on Bruce. Maybe we should just move ahead without him, uh, but we'll see. Um, you know, just pointing out, you know, sometimes just a little thing in the game that makes it special. Um, and sometimes they are bad games. I mean, in the Ancient series, I talked about Slytherin's uh, Ancient Battles games, the Legion game especially. And all of their games are generally, until Field of Glory, they uh, weren't really very good. But they all have this great idea where you just set out your battle plan and watch your troops go. You don't have control over the battlefield. Yep. You have to make your plan up the very beginning. And once you learn to master the system, you can actually get some really sophisticated, neat stuff going on. Getting the troops stopping in the right terrain, getting your flank at the right time, but you've got to practice it. Uh, but it's a neat and great idea, and it's so easy to be seduced by that neat and great idea and miss all the other bad stuff, or be overwhelmed by the bad stuff and forget that really no one's done it like this since for like 15 years. And here they're doing it, and it actually works. Um, 
that's the sort of thing that I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to blog. Um, so, because um, that's the sort of thing I wanted to do in the blog when I started it, but now I'm just too much time doing other stuff. Uh, but I want to get certainly back to that. Um, and try to revisit some of these old games are just games after the big flush of surprise. I mean, StarCraft II uh, will probably be very different, I think, a different experience when other mods come out uh, in three months' time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure seeing how StarCraft evolves will be very interesting. And how the play experience evolves as the players get better and as I get better. I'll never get better. Who am I lying? I'm lying. I'll never get any well, better. Well, you just need to use your copious free time to... Oh, yeah, my copious free time. I haven't got a single hour. My hours are so booked up uh, this week and next week and next month. But, um, so anything to add, Rob? Um, no, I mean, that about covers it. You know, I've got one more game I'll, one, one more okay, game sure. I'll toss out there. I, I brought it up on the show before, but um, Adrian Earle's American Civil War, um, right. which took the concept he sort of pioneered with Field of Glory, um, the other Field of Glory, the Napoleonic... Um, you know, fields of fields of glory. Fields of glory. It was I. Is it field or fields? I think it was field. No, I think fields was a Napoleonic one. Okay, field. field. Yeah. All right, fields of glory. Anyway, um, so fields of glory showed the the Waterloo campaign, you know, on, on the battlefield, and it was very vibrant and colorful. And so he took that to the American Civil War, built a strategy game onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you what you've got there is, it's technologically it was it was too much to ask. It was too big a project for his team, I'm certain. Uh, but what you've got there is something very reminiscent of what the Total War series would eventually do, um, mm-hmm. just a few years later. And I, I strongly strongly suspect that there was some cross pollination there. That uh, the Creative Assembly guys were familiar with Adrian Earle's work. But the cool thing about American Civil War is that. Um, you know, it took place. It took place in this huge strategy map of uh, the United States from just west of the Mississippi to the East Coast, um, and you were in charge of basically the entire war effort for the Confederacy or the North. And um, there, there are a couple really neat things things going on there. One was um, you couldn't. It really limited you in what you you could accomplish with a city. Um, for instance, like Boston, Springfield. Um, Louisville, these these places could be very powerful centers of industry and raising troops. Um, but no matter how much money you invested in Podunkville, Pennsylvania or something, um, you were never going to turn that into a bustling metropolis that was going to be able to uh, spin up to a huge war machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I think that strategy, a lot of strategy games still <coughs> wrestle with, is this idea that uh, you can sort of do inkblot expansion, right? Where you just invest and invest and invest in some sort of pet project, strategically right. located. And it will blossom into, almost of, of its own accord, it will blossom into Constantinople or Gibraltar or Rome or something like that. And just become this huge power base. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it basically you can you can almost treat cities like tanks. You know, you pull them, you 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 choose a city right up, you know, by the enemy border. You just invest in it, and eventually that city will overwhelm them. Yeah, um, the- this was a game where that just that just was not possible. Um, so I mean, when you were fighting along the Mississippi, you know, the farther south you went as the as the north, um, the harder that campaign got. Because you just you you were so far away from any good sources of resupply that really you had to make do with what you had, um, and that was a really nifty concept. The other thing that was cool, and I really haven't seen too many games run with this concept, is um, you would sort of construct each army, and I don't, mean, I don't just mean uh, build you know add units and assemble them in an army, but you would actually design the chain of command for the Army of the Potomac or the Army, Army of Northern Virginia. So you, would, you, could, you had the choice of like sliding Longstreet in as a brigadier or a division commander, uh, you know, kicking Lee out and putting somebody else in. And so you, you would go, you know, when you had your troops and you had your generals, you would go and you would assemble them into a chain of command, um, which, was, which is a really neat concept. It's just a shame that the battle engine... Uh, really was not in shape to do anything with it. How was that different than what Ajod does in its Civil War game? Oh, there you go. 
somebody ha- totally has run with it. Oh, there we um, go. Yeah, no, that's just that just completely slipped my mind. But yeah, no, it was very much like that, um, where you where you would choose who was going to be at the top and which armies would work well together. Mm-hmm. Um, the the trouble is like unlike the age odd games, it really didn't have a major effect uh, because the AI was so bad, the battles were so nonsensical right. that you know it didn't matter if Robert Lee was in command or. Um, you know, Hood was in command. You know, the, the 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 result would be the same either way, no matter where these two guys were located in the chain of command. Um, whereas Age Out, of course, has been much more successful with that. Right. So there we go. Uh, a reminder to listeners that episode 80 will be yet another question and answer episode. We're going to do that every 40 episodes, do question and answer. Uh, if you have any questions, I have a couple already, uh, but I always want more. Uh, so, so if you have a, if you have a, form, a form spring question about the podcast, save that for the question and answer podcast, and don't send it to my form spring. Uh, that to send it to my email address troy.goodfellow at gmail.com. Rob, Julian, hopefully Tom or Bruce will be there to answer any questions you might have about strategy gaming, about us, about uh, what have you. And that's be episode eighty. So in two episodes time. So and you can send the questions right up to pretty much the time I record. Uh, because what else am I going to be doing all day but reading your questions? Um, I'd like to thank everyone who came out to the meetup on Saturday at the Gordon Biersch in Washington, D.C. It was a small group. There were eight of us, uh, but it was it was a good that it was that size. So I got a chance to talk to everybody. Uh, we had uh, Jared and Rob and Susan and Rob and Josh and Ryan and John. Uh, Don Schaefer, in fact, uh, came took time with his busy schedule to come down and hang out with us and talk about baseball and the iPad and why he gets carded everywhere he goes. So it was a lot of fun. So I thank everyone for coming out. I'll be doing another one uh, probably sometime this fall, I think, with the winter. But we can do this every season. It'd be so much the better. There's talk about setting up a board game night. So we might do that as well if we can find a good location. Um, so let's keep that in mind. So thanks for that. Um, next week's show, uh, how about we talk Victoria 2? You ready for that, Rob? Oh, game on. Next week, uh, the plan is we will talk about Victoria 2, our impressions of it, uh, probably just us. Uh, we have some issues with it, but we have a lot of stuff we also really like. Uh, Rob is reviewing it for Game Shark. Mm-hmm. And I am reviewing it for PC Gamer, uh, so my review won't be out uh, next week. Uh, but I'll certainly have a few thoughts to say, without you know, giving away too much uh, that's already in my review. Because yes, I am writing for PC Gamer. I guess my first work is now on the newsstands, and I'll be writing some more about that on the blog. What did you write about for your first uh, out in PC Gamer? Uh, introductory column. Here's who I am. Here's how I think about things. And a review of Disciples 3. So that's I will I look for that on the newsstand. I'm sure many of our listeners will as well. Please do. And let me know how bad the head headshot is apparently terrible. They want a new one. So I've got to find a friend who knows how to take a good picture so I can get a good headshot. Um, so if you have any suggestions for games we didn't talk about, bad games with one good bit of genius idea, please put them in the comments uh, on flashofsteel.com related to episode 78, and uh, we'll try to get some feedback on those, because these types of topics tend to bring out games that I hadn't even thought of, um, and uh, that's why I love you guys. Uh, say goodnight, Rob. Good night, everybody. See you all next week. <laughs>